0: Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Just one verse in your hearing because you guys are all familiar probably with this story. But it's the story of a rich young ruler and it's told in three of the four gospels, I believe, maybe in all four. Um, But uh, this rich young ruler comes to him and said, you know, verse 16 said, Behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You know the story. Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And then he, after hearing it, he said, I've done this since I was a boy. And Jesus says one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have to the poor. Uh, Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Right? And so, interesting verse. And I have been, me and a, a group of friends have been talking for some time about that we, in our modern culture, we need a reformation of faith. We need a reformation of the concept and the ideal from a biblical perspective of faith because in modern Christianity, we want to simplify everything. And sometimes in our attempt to simplify everything, we hollow out kind of the guts, you know, the foundation of a word like faith or belief. And, And believe me, faith and belief are a part of the concept of the Greek word pistis, which is the root word for all those forms, okay? But it's much wider than that. It's much wider than that. And so, this is not just my own study, but I came across a book by Matthew Bates, uh, uh, an incredible scholar, that, that helped me understand some things that I'd been wrestling with for some time about the concept of faith, because you'll hear people in a very simplified, give you a gospel presentation that it's by faith alone, you know, and and really what they have in mind is I agree mentally or verbally to what you said, and I pray a prayer, and it's done. It all happens at that moment, okay, and I really feel like that hollows out what the message is. And so today, God being my helper, I'm going to preach to you about a reformation of faith. And I believe it's coming. It's coming in the academic area. It's coming everywhere. People are starting to see that in our attempt to to have these stadiums filled with people who make a step of faith, that we have, in our attempt to reach people, we have gutted the real essence of what it is to walk by faith with Jesus Christ. And put our faith in what he's done on our behalf. Father, we're so thankful that the word of God is powerful in and of itself. Help guide me this morning to deepen our understanding of this concept. Lord, that our contemporary culture is is really muted. The real essence of this word. God, help us, Lord Jesus, to grow in our walk with you. May our faith grow. May our our connection and commitment grow. Lord, and our faithfulness to you grow as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise God. I I, I have a little bit of sinus stuff, and so I'm not. I uh, have to have a lot of water because this stuff that I take for it dries me out. So, uh, if you see me drinking a lot, that's my problem. Uh, Water, drinking a lot of water. (laughs) I don't think the other stuff would help, by the way. Uh, Man, I love this story because it helps us look into the, the theology of Jesus, and I... The more I look at the theology of Jesus and how he talked to people about the kingdom, about eternal life, it's far different from this very simplified thing that we hear. You've probably had someone come to your door and said, do you know for a certainty that if you died that you would go to heaven, you know what I mean, and then they want to lead you through this process to make you, give you that certain assurance or that guarantee. Unfortunately, I think it's well-meaning, don't get me wrong, I think it's well-meaning, but it's really uh, a slimmed down version of what God entails for us. And, and the more I look at what Jesus said to people, the more I realize how distinct his words are from our modern concept of faith and taking a step of faith. So, and this is what I love about what Jesus says to this man. To the amazement of our contemporary preachers, uh, Jesus does not give the response that neatly fits our tidy theological systems he doesn't say just have faith right he doesn't say that he uh, Jesus refers him to the law you know and that we know and we're not saved by works of the law but he refers him to the law right he says nothing about faith in him or his identity or his kingdom or his plan and when the ruler confirms he's kept all of this since his you Jesus clarifies that he lacks one thing it is not faith but rather another work beyond the Ten Commandments. Let's let that set in. Let me tell you, this is with Jesus, this is red letter, okay? So the word made flesh, the Torah made flesh, he refers him to this. And and that a lot of people want to juggle with this and they want to do back bends to try to, you know, make Jesus like them. But I want to be like Jesus. I want my theology to be like his. Right? I want my theology to reflect what he reflects. And some would think that Paul and Jesus would be at odds. Well, then Paul's wrong, not Jesus, right? <laughs> I don't believe Paul's wrong if you understand what he's actually saying and we'll get to him. But when Jesus explicitly describes how to attain eternal life, he emphasizes not faith alone, but rather the absolute necessity of right action. For example, in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says, uh, we must enter the narrow gate. We must do something, not the wide gate, many that go in there at, right? But they are lost. And then uh, we should take up our cross and deny ourselves." in Matthew 10, 38, 39. There is a definite action, not just a mental ascent to truth. And then in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, he says, he def- divides the sheep from the goats, and he said the sheep are the ones that provide food, water, clothes, and help for the sick and visit the imprisoned, right? The others do not. They don't have a definite action of a changed life. They may have a mental faith, but it has no effect on the way they live. And then one of the great stories is when you get to the, the story of Zacchaeus, the small uh, the small." stature little guy who wanted to see Jesus little tax collector and he gets up in a tree and Jesus says today I want to go home with you and in response to Jesus inviting himself home Zacchaeus says in Luke 19 Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord behold the Lord behold Lord the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation I restore to him fourfold And Jesus said, this day is salvation come to your house. For as much as you also, for he is the son of Abraham as well. Right? So, what is it that gets Jesus to respond? It is a concrete action. Right? That he said, I'll give back what I have extorted. It is Zacchaeus' concrete gift to the poor, an action to make reparation that prompts Jesus to say, salvation has come to his house. Right? We've talked about this before in the, in the articulation of faith, where faith has to have with it not just the mental, but also the changed action. And, and I think a lot of us get confused about works. When you hear works, you always say works that merit salvation. There's a difference between good works and works of the law. You need to understand that. Jesus himself said that people would see your good works and glorify your father in heaven they wouldn't glorify you they wouldn't merit anything but they would say that your life is oriented around the kingdom of God and the love of other right that's what they would see and so we must understand that good works the requirement of Jesus teaching about eternal life is distinguished from works of the law true allegiance is expressed in good works of love to our neighbors and the less fortunate. Without these, faith is reduced to just a head knowledge. Good works don't merit salvation. They glorify the king we are loyal to and announce his righteous reign. That his righteous reign is already taking place in our life. Our life is a testament that we have a new king and new rules and we don't try to to promote ourselves but to help those who are less fortunate. Can you help me? This is why Jesus came. Jesus never preached the gospel of salvation. It's wrong-headed. He never said that. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. You have to understand this. The gospel, the kingdom is the highway, and the gospel is like an entry ramp onto the highway. The gospel is how I get on the highway, and I start living under the dominion of a new king. I am not the king of my life anymore. I don't make my own decisions independent of his word and the Spirit's leading. Can I get a witness? That is the proof that I have allegiance to a new king. And when he announced the kingdom is at hand, understand the kingdom is now but not in its fullness. It is now but not fully come into all of its power. That's why when you see Jesus doing miracles, he's announcing his sovereignty over disease and over demonic attacks. He's saying, I am sovereign. My, my, my works show who I am and my words show who I am. So, his miracles verified his sovereign power. And you may not know this, but the Greek word for faith is the root word "pistis." okay, and uh, it's, it's generally rendered faith or belief, but it has little to do with salvation, especially the way contemporary Christians and our culture understand belief. The proper human response to the gospel is the concept in the, the word faith in Latin is fetus, fidelity, loyalty, faithfulness, right, or, or allegiance, so but. And, and let me, I'm going to unpack this for you. So, the idea of faith is allegiance to a king. It is submission to his authority and his power. It is orienting my life around being in the kingdom. In the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom live a certain way. Right? And we should see those good works. Right? Of loving others and helping others and sharing the gospel and helping those that are less fortunate. So... Before I provide you all the evidence to undergird that, I want to correct some misunderstandings about faith. Is that all right? Because I hear this stuff a lot, and we catch things from other people, and sometimes we don't critically think about what we're saying, but before you can fully understand what faith is, you have to realize what it's not. So I want you to know faith is not the opposite of the assessment of evidence. It is not the opposite of the assessment of evidence, okay? There are good reasons for faith. It is not belief in spite of any evidence, okay? There are good reasons for faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? We have eyewitnesses who give their life for that testimony. We'll give you a good example. Uh, I heard this story. There were, and God, and I don't mean to throw any shade at the Church of Latter day Saints. Mormons in general. This is just a story, okay? Mormon missionaries came to a house and began to talk to them about Joseph Smith's revelation. And in their, in their group of textual things is what they call the Book of Abraham. And the person that they knocked on their door knew through later discoveries and cuneiform tablets that the Book of Abraham was not even about Abraham. It was about the god Osiris. And so they told these young uh, missionaries, look, this book isn't even about. We, we know from being able to interpret those old tablets that it's about which was an Egyptian god, okay? But these young missionaries responded, we believe that we can only know the truth by faith. They're unflappable, right? The assessment of truth... The assessment of a truth claim was considered by these missionaries to be a matter of faith, divorced from available evidence that might contradict the claim. That is not faith. That is not biblical faith. I want you to understand that. Faith was understood not as just an alternative, but a superior way of knowing what is true or false. For many, faith is defined as the opposite of evidence-based truth. This is not a biblical understanding of faith. This definition is naive and dangerous. It is. The faith God requires has nothing to do with ignoring relevant evidence. Okay? It has nothing to do with ignoring relevant evidence. It's not, that is not faith. Okay? If your doctor says you have cancer, it is not faith to say, no, I don't. It's faith to say, I believe God will heal me. All right? I want to make sure that because we catch this stuff and it becomes imbibed in our traditions and we don't really think it through, but that's not what he's talking about. There are good reasons to believe in the testimony of the Bible, right? Because all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, that's why the Bible is trustworthy, All right? Because Jesus believed the Bible was the word of God and he was resurrected. And we have the eyewitness testimonies. They said, we saw him. He said he wasn't a ghost. We touched him. We put our hands in the wounds. We're sorry. We know it sounds strange, but we saw a dead guy live. Every one of them gave their life for that testimony. That is not just believing for believing's sake. That is believing with some evidence attached to it. Got that? Secondly, it's not a leap in the dark. Faith is not a leap in the dark. As Christians, we often encourage to step out by faith. Right To intentionally push aside our comfort zone. To be a true Christian, we must plunge into the darkness knowing God will catch us. For example, right? Noah was saved when he acted on things not yet seen. He didn't know what rain was. Responding to the command of God to build an ark, even in the absence of tangible evidence of any danger or impending doom, The leap in the dark ideal is half truth, right? Yes, he did do some things not knowing what would happen, but he didn't launch out into the void. He responded to God's specific command on how to build it. You with me? God told him to build it. He, he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know anything about rain, but he had a word from God. Launching out into the deep and plunging out of our comfort zone needs to have a word from God, either in the written word or a prophetic utterance. You with me? <laughs> See, true faith is reasonable. Action oriented, grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than what we can see. It's based on what the Word of God says, it's based on things that can be confirmed in the Word of God. A lot of people will do, you see this happen in, in America. We'll, we'll do these big stadiums full of people and get people to raise their hands and come to faith and all this stuff. You don't really realize what was happening in the early church. And we pattern that after the early church because 3,000, 5,000. Do you realize that most of those people were already God-fearing, Torah-observant Jews who all they needed to know was that Jesus was the Messiah? This was not pagan unbelievers that were the first converts. That's why I believe in my heart of hearts that there is a revival coming to the Orthodox Jewish and Hasidic Jewish because they're already following everything they know. They just need some more light about who Jesus is. And I believe through the Old Testament and through Isaiah 53, you can prove that Jesus was Messiah ben Joseph, right? You can do it. See, we don't leap out in the dark on a whim to simply prove we have faith. But our faithful God may call us to act on the invisible realities of the kingdom. That's why when the gift of prophecy or the gift of word of knowledge are being exercised in a church, what does he say? He says, one one gift, the message in tongues, another interprets, what's everybody else? Everybody else judges. Judges by what? The word of God. Is it for edification? Is it for the building up of the church, right? Or is it to humiliate someone, some secret thing? Come on, that's not the, that's not the exercise of the gifts. And we can say that. Because we have the Word of God to help us in those areas where the Spirit is moving in the charismatic gifts. And make sure that it's done right and properly. Finally, this is the one that gets me more than anything. I've to take this off. This one gets me. This one gets me. It is not, it's all good attitude. (laughs) Come on, I'm going to give you an example so you can follow me. You lost your job, rent is overdue, and utility bills are piling up. Enter your well-intentioned Christian friend saying everything is going to be all right. Just have faith. Don't get a second job. Don't try to work out a payment plan with them. Just have faith. This sound familiar? Right? This is an inadequate definition of faith. You might begin to think of faith as maintaining a positive mindset. Faith is not optimism. This optimism is delusional, and when everything does not work out, you might attribute that to a lack of faith. Right? They say, have faith. Well, it, it never got paid and they kept coming and now I owe more and now I got penalty and interest. I guess I didn't have enough faith. Why is it not faith? Because there's no concrete object in view. If you've got a word from God, if you've got a promise from God, then that's something that you put your faith in. You don't just have faith for faith's sake. Right? with me? That's important that you grab that. It is faith for faith. Say genuine faith is not conjured optimism. Let's say, let's say, give me, give you an example. Let's say you have a glitchy computer. Mine is glitching out now. It won't keep a charge. But let's say you have a glitchy computer and you know it's unreliable. And guess what? You've just been contacted by your dream job that you have a Zoom interview with them for your dream job, dream company, dream money. Are you just going to have faith it's going to work? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make an alternate setup. I would either get it fixed before then or I'd use somebody else's that is not unreliable. I wouldn't just have faith. <laughs> See, true faith cannot be spontaneously generated on the basis of wishful thinking. Faith is grounded in a faithful God who speaks and cannot lie, okay? It is grounded in his promises and his word to us. And then if we're on that, then we are on faith in something specific, not just wishful, positive thinking that things will go our way. Faith must be directed toward a defined object. It is the trustworthiness of God that it has to be directed toward. God has proved himself trustworthy, and his word will not return void. So when he asked Abraham for Isaac's life, even though it seems absurd, Abraham can trust God because he's given him a child in old age, right? And he's promised that through this seed, Isaac, all the nations will be blessed. So he knows he's either got to raise him from the dead, or he's going to send something else in its place. It is not just a... Going out in the dark. Well, we're going up to worship. He's got faith in God. God gave him the child. God said, all the nations and your seed are going to come through Isaac. So Isaac has to be raised for the dead or there has to be something other. He knows that. That's faith. That's faith. It's not reducible to an intellectual ascent. The free grace movement approaches salvation by knowledge, right? Like... And this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Uh, Donald Blesch said this, and if you don't know who Donald Blesch is, I can, I can show you some of his books. But he said that misplaced dogmatism is the belief that correct doctrine uh, is necessary before salvation. You think that the disciples knew who Jesus was? Only one of them, by the Holy Spirit, answered right. The rest of them said, some say Elias, some say Ezekiel, some say Jeremiah. We don't know. You think they had correct doctrine? Why did all of them run to the cross? They didn't think he was going to be resurrected. They didn't have any faith in that. They didn't have any correct doctrine. They assert that all God requires for eternal salvation is to hold a minimalistic belief that Jesus died for my sins. The weight of emphasis is on our personal intellectual assent. Nothing else is required for your salvation. Now what's interesting is these same people in this movement does not want to claim that the demons in James 2.19 who believe in one God and tremble are saved but they want to tell you you are. Because my Bible says they believe in one God they have faith pistis right and they tremble. Are you telling me they're saved? Why are they not saved? Because even with their confession or knowledge, there is no change in allegiance. They are still opposed to him. They are still opposed to the people of God. They don't change their allegiance. They don't change their behavior. Amen? All right, so that's what it's not. So what is true faith? The gospel is about the death of Jesus and its atoning work for sinners. But it reaches its climax with Jesus' exaltation as sovereign rule and Christ the King. That's, That's it. He's a king. All right? Remember Philippians 2? He became obedient even the death of the cross for this reason God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every tongue shall confess every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord above the earth on the earth under the earth everywhere. It's the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and King. Yes, he is, not in his fullness yet. Yes, he is over the church and the believers, but not in his fullness. That's coming, okay? So it is in a certain way, but it's not fully come yet. So the gospel is about that. Jesus, uh, the best way that I can help you understand faith is if Jesus is a king, then the best way to have faith in him is to have allegiance to that king. I don't want to get off on something here, but I feel like I need to help you with this. Have you ever read that the, in the Bible it talks about the elect? Election has nothing to do with salvation. I'm going to show you. Israel was the elect. They were chosen. He didn't choose them because of who they were. He said, you were the least of people. He said, before Abraham, there wasn't any of you guys. He said, I didn't choose you because of you. I choose you because I love you. That's election. But what does election give them? It gives them the opportunity to know truth. The word was given to them. That's all it is, is the opportunity and the access to truth. None of those other nations had it. They were elect. They had access to truth. But guess what? The ten northern tribes never really recovered from their exile. Guess what? Why did they get exiled? They were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping other gods. They turned their back. And they go into captivity and never really come back. Only Judah and the two tribes really come back to the land. So are you telling me that God saves idol worshipers? Election and salvation are not the same thing i got a verse for you, if you want want me to really help you with this, give me Romans chapter 11, I don't have my Bible with me today, give me Romans chapter 11, starting verse 17, I'll come back to it while you're working on it, because I didn't give you that in advance, but I feel this in the Holy Ghost. Now watch this, if some of the branches had been broken off, who would that be? That's Israel. You tell me the elect has been broken off, the elect are not the elect? Though a wild olive shoot, you have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nursing sap from the root. Talking about Gentiles. Gentiles, because they've been broken off, you've been grafted in. Go ahead. I'm sorry, bud. (laughs) It may be harder than I thought. Wonderful. (laughs) Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You were grafted in to a Jewish church. That's where the nourishment comes from. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. Watch this. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. We don't have a word for that. It's really, it's really the, the Hebrew word kassed. And if you look in a lexicon, it'll say there are no ancient Near Eastern cognates for cassette. But this is, this is the Greek word, right? Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, if you're elect and you're, you're, you're secure for all time, then what's that about right there? Now, I'm not trying to tell you you're saved by works, but you have to continue in allegiance. You have to endure to the end. To the one you said was king. You can't choose another king. You can't make yourself king of your life and still be saved. You with me? Okay. I got off track. Romans 3.3. 3. Watch this very carefully. You get some teaching today. Now, I think I, I did this in, uh, in the King James because it's important. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Scholars agree that the final word for faith, faith of God, which is the Greek word pistis, should be interpreted faithfulness, right? God doesn't have faith in things. God is faithful to his word. God is true to his word. He doesn't have faith. So if you were to rewrite this, changing those words, let's look at it. And other translations correct this, by the way. So, if we were consistent, Romans 3 3 would read, For if some were not faithful, shall their unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now we have, now it's right. But because we throw these words around and we don't see the deeper meaning of it, sometimes we just think it's an intellectual assent. So let's, let's take this. Let's take everywhere where the root word pistis is used and let's substitute allegiance in there, okay, and see if it works. Romans 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through the allegiance, instead of faith, allegiance of Jesus to Christ for all who give allegiance. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood through His allegiance. Now, doesn't that sound better? not deeper? Romans 5.1, we can do the same thing there. Therefore, since we've been justified by allegiance, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through allegiance of Jesus the Christ. So he has also given allegiance to the the Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the allegiance of the one, Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one shall be justified. Okay? Galatians 2.20 It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by allegiance to the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What is the appropriate response for someone who loved you and gave themselves for you? And they're the king. It's allegiance to him. That means you can't be your own God. You can't make your own decisions about what in the scripture is important and what's not. That means you're in control and he's no longer the authority. One vital verse. 1 Corinthians fifteen two. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also have received and wherein ye stand, but which you also, by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you've given allegiance in vain. All right? You with me? I'll give you all these notes if you want them. You can go through them slowly. So Paul presupposes that the most basic identity of Jesus is that he's an enthroned king or Christ the Lord. Same thing. It comes from the Old Testament word Adonai. Adonai means master, the ultimate, right? There's no one above him. Same kind of thing. Christ the king. Christ the exalted one. Christ the one who is on the throne now, right? And the consistency of our allegiance to him is how our status of salvation is. Paul's allegiance is now exclusively to Christ the king. This works seamlessly with our first command. Remember the first command: "You have no other gods before me." That doesn't mean that there is a a priority. He's number one. Then you have two God, three God, four God. That means you have no other gods in my presence. The word is in my face. None. Period. There is no room for rivals. You are allegiant to me who saved you, or you're allegiant to someone else. Romans 1.5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. This gives, this gives people in the reformed culture, it gives them problems. What is this obedience to the faith? But if you understand allegiance, you understand why those two things go together. Why obedience would be the outworking of allegiance. And not just head knowledge. Not just, I believe there's a God, I believe he died for me. That's a good start and that has to happen but it has to go deeper than that. The purpose of the gospel is to bring about obedience that is characteristic of allegiance to the king of kings. How can I say that I trust him for salvation but I don't trust his word to guide my life? That means your heart has not fully been changed. It has not submitted to his lordship and his Christ. You want what he can give you, but you don't want to be transformed to his nature and likeness through obedience. You with me? I want you to think. I want you to get a hold of this. I want you to understand this because somebody's going to come along and go, well, all you got to do is have faith. Just have faith. Isn't it it interesting to me that We've had churches of thousands and hundreds of thousands that'll come along and say, if you sow this seed, you're going to get 10 times this. But it always is a matter of your faith if you don't get what they say you get. That's a great scam. It's always your fault. It's never they were wrong. It's never, that's not the gospel. That's not what God intends. It's always you don't have enough faith. If you believe my be, or if you would give more, That's a great deal. I I have faith in God, that God wants me to prosper, that God wants me to be blessed, that he wants to prosper the work of my hands. I don't have faith in what somebody else says if it's not in the word of God. I have faith in him. What's interesting about this is all this goes against what Paul told Timothy. He said, they that would be rich, those that want it, those that look for it, pierce themselves through with snares. Because why? Why do they want it? They want it so they can be autonomous from God. I don't have to depend on him anymore. I don't want to ask for daily bread. I want to have a year's worth of bread. That's us, Right? I want to have it in the bank, right? I want to have it over here. And then I don't have to worry about him. I got it. I got my life taken care of. See, enacted allegiance is the objective of the gospel. That's what it is, that we embody our allegiance. How does that look? That looks like worship and praise. That looks obedience to his word, right? It looks like help to the less fortunate. That's what it looks like. This helps us understand phrases like the law of Christ and the law of the Spirit or the law of liberty that are used in the New Testament. I thought the law was bad, not in those contexts, right? Romans 8 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. James 1.25, but the one who gazes into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persists, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, this one will be blessed in his doing. To put your faith in Christ means embodied allegiance to the king by obeying his truth. If a king was here on earth and he made a decree, everybody in his kingdom would have to do it. You understand, that's who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with just fuzzy Jesus who loves you and wants to save you apart from yourself, right? He's just a grandfather and he'll never do anything but pat you on the head. That's not him. But while his his nail-scarred hands are extended, he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. But I'm here to tell you, when he comes again, he will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because he's extended grace and he's extended grace and he's made opportunities for us to give him allegiance and we say, no, I don't want to do that. Whatever that is, is your God. Whatever that is, whatever that thing is, I don't want to give up this relationship. Well, then that's your God. In order to to give him the worship and the honor he deserves, he has to have our full allegiance. He has to have our full allegiance. I hear people say this all the time. I, I could do that, but I just, I, I just can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I've, I've heard this stuff. You, you know what's behind that phrase? You know what's really behind that? That I'm more merciful than God himself. Who have you died to save? Right? I wouldn't do that. Oh, oh, great, just move Hitler in next to my my mansion in heaven, unrepentant. How long do you think I'm going to (laughs) last? But this is the world we live in. We've judged him. We've judged the Prince of Peace and the one who gave his life and shed his blood. We've judged him. He's not worth the effort every week. He's not worth faithfulness. He's not worth thinking about. There are other things, temporal things, that are more important than him. We've judged him. We're just like the people in Matthew. Pilate washes his hands and he says, I'm free from his blood. What did they say? You remember? His blood be upon us and our children. In other words, we are so sure that he is not the Messiah that the responsibility for his death be upon us. That's what we're saying when we reject the gospel. I want to meet him on my own terms. I think I'm good enough to meet him without the covering of his blood. I'm not that bad. I'm not, I had killed anybody. I I hadn't done all that bad stuff. You're not being compared to them. You're being compared to Jesus who was perfect and sinless. If you're not him, you need salvation. And none of us are. You need to be forgiven. You need to be washed. You need to put your full allegiance in him. To put your faith in Christ means embodied allegiance to the king by obeying his laws. I'm not saying your obedience uh, makes you saved. I'm saying it is the proof that you really have true faith. You can't come down and say a prayer and leave, right? Never come back to a church and go, I said the prayer when I was 12. The guy said I was good. But that's what happens. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for people radical, who know who he is, who are aligned to him, loyal to him, regardless of what comes or what may. Even if they're going through hell, they're still, he's my king, he's my Lord. I don't understand what's going on, but I know who's on the throne. I know who I serve. I know in whom I believe. I know that he'll bring me through. I know he's going to reward my obedience. I know he's going to reward my faithfulness. I'm going to remain faithful regardless what anybody else does. Understand, embodied allegiance is not an attempt to establish self-righteousness, but a posture of servant-minded loyalty. Based on what you've already done for me when I was a sinner and loved me while I was a sinner, the appropriate response is allegiance, embodied allegiance, faithfulness. There are things right now in our culture that are testing our allegiance. Oh, you haven't changed your mind in here, but it is testing your allegiance. It is testing your allegiance. And you need to be aware of that. What you are saying when when you make decisions, you are saying, you know what? I think this is more important than you. You need to be careful of that. You need to be careful of that. He died to set us free. He died to save us from our sins, not to them. You know, because people will people, people say, well, I believed and, and now my, my, my obedience and my behavior doesn't matter. No, your obedience doesn't cause you to be saved. It is the proof that your heart has actually been changed, that you have a new king and a new Lord, amen? It is the proof. And if we're truly grateful for what God has done for us, amen, nobody will be able to set us down when his presence is in there. And nobody will be able to quiet us. Nobody will be able to step our praise because I want everybody to know who my king is. He's the king who came in flesh and died for me and shed his blood and he's reaching to everybody who will come and put their allegiance in him. Stand with me. Father, I just pray in the mighty name of Jesus that there would be a reformation of the concept of faith, God. That you would just change our minds from these silly simplifications, God, that fit nicely into our theological system, but don't represent what you told that would be your disciples. Those that were interested in being your disciples. So the birds have nests. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. You, you up for that? That's what he was saying. If you have expectations about what the kingdom will bring, you will be disappointed. Go away. One said, let me, go bury my, let me go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You need to make a decision. If this is valuable, if you know who I am, if you know what you're coming into, this will be far more important than family. Father, help us, help me, God, to live out my allegiance, Lord Jesus. I can't give my passion and my time to trivial things, Lord God. I can't give my passion and my allegiance to another God who can't save me, who can't change me, who can't transform me who has not been as merciful as you've been to me in all long-suffering and patient. God, you've been patient with your church, Lord. And you've been patient with it, God. But I feel in the spirit, Lord, that you're about to reform some things in your church. You're about to reform some things in your body, not just here locally, but in the greater body. That we are founded on the word of God. Founded on the truth of the word of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Not upon some cliché. I'm so tired of cliché Christianity. What cliché Christianity does is it takes something that's true but not fully true. Then it purports it. This is how simple it is. This is how easy it is. It's not about rules. It's about relationships. Show me a relationship that don't have boundaries. Well, they're not expectation of boundaries. They're expectations. Right? Otherwise, you got an open marriage. Tell me how that works out. God doesn't, he wants a covenant relationship with people who are allegiant to him. Who say, God, you're more important than anything else in my life. My job, anything in my life, my security, anything. You are more important than all that. And then we have to live that out. That's, that's easy to say in an altar when we're lost. It's a different thing to live that out. Don't settle down somewhere safe. Keep believing God to do mighty things in your life and around you.